Hello, I'm Steve Pateman, President of the Chartered Banker Institute, and welcome to episode four of our podcast series, Credit and Lending During a Cost of Living Crisis. Today, I'm joined by two guests, Oliver Sharland, who's the UK Retail Conduct Lead at CatCo, and Paul Risborough, who's a partner in the banking and payments team at CatCo. CatCo, for those listeners who may have not come across it before, is a Wipro company and a global technology and management consultancy focused in the financial services industry. CatCo operates at the intersection of business and technology by combining innovative thinking with unrivaled industry knowledge to fast track digital initiatives for banking and payments, capital markets, wealth and asset management, insurance and the energy sector. CapCo's cutting-edge ingenuity is brought to life through its award-winning be-yourself-at-work culture and diverse talent. CapCo has supported multiple clients in their responses to the consumer duty policy with a focus on customer vulnerability. CapCo hosts a vulnerability lab designed to help their clients power transformations in a way that supports vulnerable customers, bringing together critical elements of their vulnerability playbook. The lab team is comprised of industry experts, ex-regulators, charities, and a cross-section of end-user customers, enabling firms to build, test, and iterate existing and new products and services. Their modular assessment is split into three distinct paths to help clients review their organizational culture and capability and evaluate customer experience and examine how organizations use data to identify and monitor vulnerabilities. So before we move on, let me introduce my guests. Oliver Sharland is CapCo's UK Retail Conduct Lead and has extensive experience and subject matter expertise in delivering large-scale transformations related to vulnerable customers, conduct, product governance, operational risk, and regulatory remediation. He has delivered complex risk and control remediation programs for tier one banks, and has recently led CapCo's capability to help clients in the design and assurance of their response to consumer duty. He also hosts regular industry events and has regular engagement with the FCA. Paul is a partner in the banking and payments team with over 80 years of experience in banking. Paul held executive committee roles as managing director for everyday banking at Nationwide and chief commercial officer at Metro Bank. He is a finance fellow at the Aspen Institute and Paul, as some listeners may recall, is also a former trustee of the Chartered Banker Institute. So welcome to the podcast, Ollie and Paul. Can I start by maybe asking you to share with our listeners why you think new, why the new consumer duty matters to banks? Sure. Thanks, uh, Stephen. I think, why does consumer duty matter for banks? I think, firstly, it represents a pretty profound shift in how banks consider their customers and the types of products and services they provide. I think, speaking from experience, when the first consultation paper came out in 2021, I think a lot of firms, including banks, probably underestimated how big a shift it was going to have to be, maybe how much heavy lifting was going to be involved, and also how much industry scrutiny was going to be applied. With many firms thinking maybe this represented a sort of slight evolution of treating customers fairly or, or conduct plus. It's actually really forced banks to reflect on how they design and market their products, uh, the considerations they make related to value, and what constitutes good customer service. And more fundamentally, is how do they organize themselves to get a deeper understanding of their customers? And I think the reason it matters so much is that for the first time, the regulatory imperative is the same broadly as the strategic objectives of these banks, which is to provide compelling products and services that genuinely support customers <clears throat> in realizing their final uh, financial objectives through to some degree a sort of more tailored and, and personalized experience. And ultimately, 
this is a pretty difficult environment for banks to operate in. You've got customers who expect a great deal in the way of, ex of customer experience and, and, and support. You've got regulators who expect a great deal in the way of protection from financial harm. And then you've got the whole industry being sort of dramatically reshaped by new tech. And I think generally customers will vote with their feet and reputationally, no one wants to be seen not to take this seriously. Having spent the last two years focused on consumer duty with multiple clients, I would say that no one can declare a complete bill of health. Um, the FCA has been consistently clear that where firms are dealing with issues related to the amount of time it takes to make the necessary changes or prioritization decisions over and over again, they have said prioritize those products and journeys where there is greatest risk of harm for customers with characteristics of vulnerability. That means that if organizations have been a bit slow to move, uh, then if they get nothing else right, make sure they thought a lot about where they might be disadvantaging customers who are of lower resilience, be it across health or age or, or financial capability. So super important uh, for banks to get this right. Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting points that, that I've observed is that over the years, a number of firms who have worked with customers who have uh, a less strong risk profile, a less strong financial profile, I found it very hard to meet the regulators' expectations. And it seems with consumer duty that there is at last a framework by which the regulator is saying, this is the way you look after customers who are exhibiting vulnerabilities, not just in terms of health and age, but also in terms of financial circumstance. So hopefully that gives those types of businesses the, a framework against which they can operate going forward. I think I totally agree with that. I think there's been a, you know, quite a shift in how banks just understand fundamentally customer vulnerability. And you're right that consumer duty has been a tool with which, you know, banks can sort of anchor how they manage it around something that's, that's quite clear and consistent. I think previously vulnerability was thought about really how you've just described, Stephen, in a sense of sort of health capability, access needs. It was primarily, can you cater for people with certain characteristics that might make part of your product or service difficult to use? You know, this meant that for most banks, it was, do you have some form of care needs marker that means you've got a mechanism to identify and tag where a customer might need additional help. And that was seen as fairly good industry practice until, you know, until only recently. Now the expectation on firms has dramatically changed with, you know, banks expected to be able to proactively identify when customers are entering sort of more transient periods of vulnerability. So obviously that's those where they've got low financial resilience, but also short-term intense periods of, of stress or even emotional upheaval. And then that you're able to adapt journeys and service provision accordingly. So I think that does mean that, you know, banks need to have proactive planning, effective monitoring, you know, and a sort of a more cultural commitment to ensuring that vulnerable customers are not left behind as they transition and everyone does to a more digital first model. I also do think just as an example that, you know, the consumer duty makes banks think a bit differently about the concept of customer harm or detriment. You know, a good example being, um, a journey we came across for one client was the um, the joint to sole account holder journey. So where you go from having a joint bank account to removing one of the joint holders to be a sole account holder. Now, this was not a journey that could be completed digitally at the time. Now, consumer duty and its focus on customers that might be vulnerable forces you to look at that journey in a different light. So, you, you know, you suddenly imagine the kind of people going through that particular journey, people 
exiting a relationship. Maybe that relationship is potentially abusive. Maybe there's a level of financial control. Perhaps that person's existing in a position of fear. And suddenly it makes you very think very differently about the fact that that person has to try and either get into a branch or wait through a protracted phone call in order to make that change to their account setup. That suddenly becomes far more than a customer inconvenience issue. And in that instance, it was decided that that was a, a, a journey leading to foreseeable harm for that group of customers and, and as a consequence it was addressed and i think that's just a, a, an interesting example it's, it's a very interesting example because in i think two of the last three young banker of the year finals the winner has focused on a particular customer journey mm. where there is a vulnerable customer base that has ended up with a poor outcome relative to the outcome that the, perhaps they should have done so it's kind of interesting that some of the young bankers who have been asked to think about things that they think their organizations could do better had latched on to, um, in, the, in the first case, financial abuse, i.e. where a partner is, has, has kind of effectively eroded the other partner's credit record. And then more recently, um, uh, the guy who won this year was from Sainsbury's Bank and was looking at particularly about their customer journey as people progress through dementia from being able to look after their bank accounts right the way through to the end game where where they need a, a power of attorney. So it is interesting to see how these themes are, are coming together. Mm. I mean, beyond the, the obvious signs that arise from the cost of living crisis, um, are there any other areas that you would say you see in your work where banks are particularly focused on an area of vulnerability or financial risk? Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose, I, from my perspective, I think it's, it's important to sort of what's, what's, what are the drivers behind this vulnerability? So, you know, up to one in every two customers will exhibit signs of vulnerability at one point in their lives. So you're really talking about everybody almost, uh, and, and therefore understanding the drivers of it lead you to the types of solutions that banks need to invest in to, 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 to meet customer uh, needs. The long tail of the pandemic looms large um, while it, you know, temporarily interrupted lots of things for lots of people, schooling, uh, jobs, earnings and all the rest of it and created sort of, if you like, temporary vulnerability. The long tail of the pandemic is really quite profound. So there are now 2.6 million people on long term sick leave. You know, that's up from 1.9 in uh, 2019. And we've now got 1.8 million off with long COVID symptoms. And that has, you know, not only impacted their ability to earn, their their ability to get out and, you know, visit a branch or even sometimes even pick up the pick up the phone. So you're seeing a lot more um, fragility in a lot of the customer base. So that means that channel strategies need to adapt. Uh, you know, you need to be thinking about your communication uh, uh, strategies to those customers as well. You know, that's combined with this reduction in high street banking. Um, you know, we're seeing, you know, profound shifts away from the high street. That's not a new, you know, a new headline. But a recent FT uh, investigation found that one in eight UK branches that were open at the start of 23 will have closed by the end of uh, this month. So that's almost three fifths of the network vanishing since uh, 2015. So that, you know, that is a profound shift away from uh, physical banking, you know, face-to-face -face banking. And while conversational banking and video and, uh, and phone can, can fill some of that gap for a particular section of vulnerable customers that likes to talk to, uh, to someone, but also likes to operate in cash, paying in, taking out cash, cash accounting, uh, because they may be, you know, are, are economically precarious. That, that makes that a lot more complicated. And obviously the hubs are, are, are trying to fill that gap to some degree, but the reduction in, in high street banking definitely 
uh, is driving some particular um, customer experiences that the banks are finding hard to tackle. You've then got an aging population, you know, again, well trailed, but it's starting to come through. Again, some more stats. You know, if you if you listen to the ONS, there are now 15.5 million people aged 60 or over, uh, making up 23% of the UK population. Uh, and the largest uh, population growth is coming in the older age group. So by 2041, it's, there'll be over 3 million people aged over 85. These are quite profound uh, demographic changes, which again just mean on a percentage basis, more of my customers, as if I if I'm, you know, leading a bank are in that age group that means that I need extra care, I need to explain things more carefully, I need to confirm understanding, etc. You know, not saying they're lacking sophistication, but what they are lacking is, you know, what they need is, is greater support and reassurance when they make financial decisions. And as you said, just to finish, you know, the cost of living crisis, high inflation, the unwinding of some of the pandemic era supply constraints, all that kind of stuff has led to a real squeeze and, and the recent FCA financial lives survey found that 77% of respondents were experiencing an increasing burden in keeping up to date with bills uh, and credit commitments. So it's very widespread. This cost of living crisis It's not in, uh, you know, pockets that maybe uh, banks are used, used to dealing with, you know, those that have got themselves into uh, over indebtedness, et cetera. This is widespread. Uh, it's not just unsecured lending, you know, it's beginning to feed through secured uh, as well, so that you know, it's a broad-based uh, uh, vulnerability, which again, you know, complicates the strategies that banks have to deploy to respond because it's at a greater scale than it's ever been at. It, it's a very tricky. I mean, I, some of those statistics about certainly the number of people with long COVID, for example, that 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 that's a massive surprise, I think. Um, and, and speaking as one of the fifteen point five million who's now over sixty, um, I, I think you know you do become very aware of the fact that there is a lot of change taking place in the definition of vulnerability and the changing demographics of the UK, as well as the impact of, of, of COVID. And therefore this definition of how to support customers has become much than it was maybe five to 15 years ago. Are there some particular examples that you can think of where you've worked with banks or you've seen with other banks about how they are trying to engage with their customers in a different way, reflecting the change in the physical delivery that you've alluded to and trying to make that virtual delivery not necessarily personalized, but able to interact more effectively with those customers who, who would be regarded as vulnerable. Firstly, there's some foundational work there around how do you understand your customer base and how do you know them better, you know, in the absence of more human contact. And I think from our sort of interactions, we know approaches to this vary. Right. So often firms will try to design ways to address specific vulnerabilities when, in fact, a sort of more needs based approach is required as two customers with the same kind of characteristic might have very different service needs. I think, you know, we'd always sort of advocate for how can you invest more time up front, understanding your customers at a group level and then at an individual level. So, you know, greater customer representation in focus groups, using charities, trade bodies and other third party organizations who can provide first hand insights, what it's like living with certain conditions and accessing banking products. Obviously, sort of bulk analytics for data is going to feature a big part of it, but then also, you know, still speaking to them and that there is still great value in conducting in-depth sort of interviewing at group discussion or individual customer level and doing that in a way that promotes sort of vulnerability disclosure through sort of empathetic and and sincere dialogue and then where you've got you know the onboarding journey that does not involve human interaction of which 
a large proportion don't these days, then simple steps that organizations can take, like setting default options in online forms with pre-selected options to sort of disclose certain characteristics can have a big impact on people's willingness to actually offer up information of themselves. You know, people are sort of driven by status quo. So if you don't invite them to make that disclosure, they won't. And then I think once you've got that understanding, what we're seeing people do well is, you know, having the sort of identification, monitoring and treatment strategies really well thought through. So things like ensuring your digital customer journeys include ways of kind of recognizing immediately and responding to vulnerability. So a text function that allows customers to notify firms easily of their change in circumstance. Um, is there a process by which you consult with consumers or representative groups when looking to alter or, or withdraw a product? Um, you know, a more practical example is, is something like limited local language. You know, whereby do you know that your customer does not speak English as their first tongue, then irrespective of the journey they're going through, you've got a mechanism in place for them to have open dialogue with you. And I don't think that we're saying that every branch that's still open will have a multilinguist there working, you know, full time. But I think given the amount of sort of large language models available now, most customers would rightly expect a mechanism to be in place that does not require them to be typing into Google Translate on their phone, which can create quite, a, quite an uncomfortable environment. So, I mean, one of the things that I think is kind of interesting in the UK banking sector is that, and it's, and it's different to other countries, is that we have three or four, you know, four or five relatively large banks who deal with day-to-day -day banking needs. And then we have a collection of very specialist providers who provide distinct products. And some of those products are targeted at customers who are experiencing some form of financial difficulty. So for example, maybe a bridging loan or um, a level of unsecured credit. I guess it's important that each organization thinks about consumer duty in the context of their own particular business um, and tries to reflect that in the steps that they take. Would this be consistent with your experience? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, whatever the business model is, sort of driving a level of kind of financial literacy and, and resilience is really important for your customers. You know, the examples that you've just picked out there, you know, you've now got sort of seamless digital switching and easy click and collect type lending products, making it far easier than ever for consumers to get access to credit or loans, you know, or invest through products that maybe they're not particularly suitable for. You know, I think there is a burden of responsibility that sits with banks to help customers navigate those choices, you know, small to large that affect their financial well-being and to some degree sort of mental health. There was a, a study that found over 90% of people say that education fails to prepare you to handle your finances. And as someone who probably had a quite profligate 20s, I can attest to that being, being broadly true. And um, most people also think that it's their bank's responsibility to do that. Um, so more than half of people think that the, the burden of responsibility sits on the bank to make sure they're financially educated. So with that in mind, I think banks need to help customers navigate those choices. And there's lots of ways they can do that. There's nudges and alerts to help consumers monitor items like outstanding balances, due dates, how do you improve your credit score? There's modeling tools that help you explore the implication of your decisions, helping them better experience their consequences in real time. And then you know, then you've got the sort of evolution of chatbots that can help guide people through product selection and decision making. So, yeah, that, that very much the, the sort of burden of responsibility for building financial literacy and financial resilience does sit with the bank or the lender. Um, and they need to make sure that that's specific to the products they're providing. I think I'd, I'd add to that, though, Stephen. I think the perhaps the exciting thing here is, you know, banks and other institutions in the financial services ecosystem, it, it's quite exciting that they may well be competing on designing better products and services 
uh, for customers that are exhibiting signs of vulnerability. It's now seen as actually a part of competitive strategy because you know th there's a big customer base out there that actively you know wants to work with brands that make it easier for them. So one of the interesting things, which I'm sure the regulator will be will be enthusiastic about, is that there isn't one size fits all. I don't think they want all institutions to come with the same answers. Um, uh, this is very much around, you know, where can we bring innovation? Where can digital journeys adapt in real time to different needs? You know, where can we uh, put in training into our, our, our teams that's going to make the most different? You know, th there will be different answers for different brands and it will, it will obviously need to align with their own sort of business and corporate strategies. But ultimately, I think we get to a better place. We get to a better place where this is on, uh, this is a boardroom conversation. And there's a customer demand there that needs to be met and the brands that do it brilliantly well and, and do it in a way that, 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 that you know doesn't patronize vulnerable customers that works with them respects them enables them uh, you know I, I think that you know that's a that's a positive and bright role for the industry to play but also there's some there's some commercial imperative there which is great you know that that will drive us forward I think that's a really good point I mean clearly um, at this moment in time there is one financial institution that is advertising the strength in its branch network slightly amusing advert, but nevertheless, I think gets across the point very well. I think that's a good thing that actually someone is prepared to embrace a, a slightly more traditional way of distribution and, and sees that as an integral part of their proposition as much as there are uh, digital only banks who are seeking to, to engage with their customers entirely in a non-physical way. So I, I think the marketplace is, is vibrant and actually people are clearly picking different strategies to deliver their underlying uh, business objectives and that's a sign of a, of a healthy market i mean clearly technology allows us these days to to personalize um, financial services and indeed any other product in a way that we couldn't uh some time ago do you do you see personalization playing a role in financial services going forward or does that kind of run counterintuitive to some of the concepts within consumer duty no, absolutely. I mean, personalization at scale is, is what a lot of uh, our clients are looking to achieve. It's hard. It requires good data. It requires good, uh, often digital technology as well. And But you can start small, you know, just personalized notifications, alerts, proactive communications, you know, based on the behaviors or predictive behaviors of groups of customers. You know, that really helps me feel like you're thinking about me ahead of time and uh, and helping me, you know, sort through issues. It doesn't need to be you know, particularly, uh, you know, deep personalization, but it's about, you know, enabling uh, the customer to do what they want to do and protecting them from, from harm. But increasingly, it's moving into adaptive um, service journeys that, you know, that can, that can change in real time. That could even be like the tech size. It could uh, be the steps in the journey and how well they're explained, space to think, time, time to think before moving on to the next stage. So we're seeing, you know, these things, personalization moving into digital design very significantly. Um, that's not uh, a cakewalk, you know, that's difficult to operationalize, but uh, brands are investing in that uh, because again, it's a, it's a competitive uh, opportunity for them, but also kind of local, you know, more, more kind of analog types of personalization, you know, dedicated hours in branches for, for, for customers that may well be impacted by particular issues, whether that's, you know, dementia or they're a carer or they want to talk about um, over indebtedness, et cetera. Um, so, but these things need to be sort of hardwired into how you're thinking about service model design, service designer, and product design from the start. Um, it's not easy to just sort of layer them onto what you're already doing. You know, colleagues often have a lot to think about uh, in the day job already. Um, but I guess what we're sort of seeing more and more of is 
particularly in the in the space around communications and digital journey design, personalization is easier to achieve at a reasonable cost point. I think when it comes to kind of face-to-face -face human service, personalization is very, very, very relational. It's very about, it's about availability. It's about listening and it's being able to have the tools and the training available to make a difference when those, when those customers come in. And, and maybe just to add to that, you know, it, it comes down to exactly Paul says it's around tools and training, but also incentivizing stuff, you know, ultimately in order to provide really good face-to-face -face or telephony service, people need to be incentivized uh, to deal with the hard challenges the customer's presenting and not, and not sort of shy away from them. And so I think where, firms are doing this well. There's a very clear incentive structure around the outcomes being provided to customers and issue resolution. And um, and, you're, and you're seeing that sort of reflected in, in how people engage with their customers. So reading between the lines, there appears to be, I would say, some coming together of personalization, product design, and financial literacy in terms of helping customers understand the products that they're looking at and what they mean for them which has got to be a positive compared to where we were a few years ago, when every product was accompanied by five or six pages of the most small typed explanations you could possibly find. Absolutely. You know, and, and, and I think that what you've just described, that, that is the sort of cardinal objective of the consumer duty, really, you know, which is to provide a level of not tailored products and tailored service, but a level of personalization while also being really transparent with the customer and also along the way, building financial resilience through the way that you communicate with that customer. You know, and I think if most customers can demonstrate that they're striving to deliver that uh, with the way that they market and sell and support their customers, then or sell their products and support their customers, then I think that they're, they're sort of in a good place against the new requirements of the GTD. So just to wrap up, I guess a forward-looking question, as we spent a lot of time talking about things that have happened, is in a year's time, or maybe 18 months, when the regulator reflects on the impact of consumer duty, personal view, Paul, Ollie, what do you think um, they will look for in terms of success? What, 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 look, what would good look like? I think for the clients that you know we've spoken to and work with i think it will have been to finally have made progress on those processes and journeys that they know are not fantastic for customers that um exhibit vulnerabilities and actually create harms and they might be micro harms but they're harms so you know i don't think most bank um heads could look you in the eye and say that they for example their bereavement process is fantastic or delegated authority or representative access all that sort of stuff these are the sort of unloved aspects of servicing that for too long have been sort of ignored and you're sort of sent off to sort of have a telephone conversation which refers you to branch which then refers you to a leaflet you know etc cetera, etc cetera. i think they'll want to see that we're looking at the customer experience in a more holistic way really understanding where harms are are occurring and, and putting the investment behind sorting those problems out i think digital technology provides a wonderful opportunity to do that in a in, in a really seamless and convenient way i think the challenge for the industry is how we move and transition away from uh, physical face-to-face -face banking. And that transition is underway at a macro level. There are brands that are taking a different route, as you, as you rightly said, but you know, the trend is much less high street presence. And so I think the industry, and I think the regulators will be looking at that going, well, how are we managing that transition? Can digital take all of that load? Uh, and I think the consumer duty is a, is, a, is a really great framework for them to look at that, how firms are managing that transition and are they protecting customers from harm in that in that transition i agree with everything that paul said and i think is sort of describe the transition that every bank is going through at the moment i also think on a sort of potentially more tactical level what the regulator is going to be looking at 
you know, is, is, is something related to a real close look at which fees, you know, actually hold muster when, when under, under close scrutiny, whether they impact disproportionately vulnerable customers. So think things like punitive charges, think things like dormancy fees, you know, I think they're going to be on the front foot coming after firms that haven't really interrogated whether it's fair for a customer to be paying a fee over a you know protracted period, having never used a service and potentially not even aware that they're paying for service. And I think so, Paul's very articulately described sort of the long-term vision of where consumer is going. That's also where I think the FCA is going to be coming after firms in the next sort of six to 12 months. And we've already started to see that, not necessarily in the banking sector specifically, uh, but we're starting to see their intention with some of the interventions they're making. Well, I guess time will tell. I mean, I, I think as a practitioner, I initially saw consumer duty as, as another series of hoops to go through. But the more I've worked with it over the course of the last year or so, the more actually I can see how it can create very good, much better outcomes than we had in the past, particularly in the areas that Paul touched on around bereavement. Again, a, a very unloved, not particularly great process within an organization. The area of fees that Ollie touched on in terms of fairness and applicability. I think there's a really good opportunity to create a framework whereby financial institutions can help vulnerable customers get to a better place. And that framework didn't previously exist. So it's been very rare for me in my career to praise the regulator for doing something, but I fear I am in danger of doing it. And that strikes me as a, as a good note upon which to end. So thank you to Ollie and Paul for joining us and sharing your insights into the importance of the new consumer duty framework to banks and for the work that you've been doing to help banks support vulnerable customers through these challenging times. I hope that our listeners have enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, then please feel free to share it more widely with your social media. In the meantime, thank you and goodbye.